that. Okay, our text uh, this morning together is Mark chapter 10, beginning verse 13. So if you have a Bible, have a device, have some way to read along with us, and just let me introduce this, and we'll read a few verses together in just a couple minutes. Uh, let's take a, take a moment and pray with me. Let's ask for the Spirit's help with His Word. Father, we do come uh, again humbly ask, yet hearts filled with faith. We're going to read from your word, and we're going to preach from that text. Uh, but Lord, what we need is altogether, Lord, a work of your spirit. Open wide our hearts. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see what the spirit is saying to us today, this morning, from this text, in this context, and use it for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. When Jesus calls you, when you become a Christian, when you enter into the faith, that really begins a disciple-making process. The work of the Holy Spirit takes on sort of a, a, a new context in your life, and you begin a, a training session. You are being walked through by the grace of God with the help of the Holy Spirit lessons, lessons about what the grace of God looks like, works like in a person's life. The grace of God finds us lost, separated from God, adopts us in, draws us into himself, and then begins to train us. We have sort of, in a sense, entered into Christ's kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, all, all the same. The place not a location, but the state where Christ is reigning and his subjects are subject to him, gladly following him. That's what being a Christian is all about. And so we get an ongoing series of lessons about how the grace of God functions in your life, what it means to live life in the kingdom, what it means to live life as sons and daughters of God. And importantly as well, not just as individuals, but the lessons are very much about what does it mean for you and I to live as the community of God's people. And those are the lessons. And our context of our text that we're reading and our study for several weeks going through the book of Mark is now Jesus making disciples out of his disciples, walking them through lesson by lesson by lesson. This, boys, is what it's like to live in the kingdom. This is what it means. This is what the grace of God produces in your heart. We've walked through things like, what really makes a person great in God's eyes? Who do we accept who do we reject? Who's welcome? Who do we keep out? Who do we allow to hang around with and who do we spend time with or who do we avoid? What about marriage? What about divorce? How do we, how do we view these things? Now, we already all have ideas about these things. We're already working with, with functional concepts about who we like to be with, who we don't like to be with, who's acceptable and who's not. 
What makes a person great? What makes a person low or least? We have these concepts, but when we come into Christ, Jesus begins to work on these things and say, now, this is how it works in the kingdom. Who's in? Who's out? Who's great? Who's low? What does marriage mean? This morning, our text is about children. What do you think about children? How do you relate to children? How do you view children? And Jesus is going to make a point for us this morning about the kingdom of God and children. So just as last week, marriage becomes a thing of such high value because of what it displays and what it represents of God's kingdom. That's what gives marriage weight. So this morning, now children are being elevated to such a high value because of what they display and what they represent in the kingdom. This morning, we're given a lesson about children and the kingdom. Let's read the passage together. This is Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. And they were bringing children to him, that's Jesus, that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child, shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Children, show us the kingdom of God. And so we bless them. We'll break it down in three parts here. Let's look at the disciples and children. Then let's look at Jesus and children. And then let's wrap it up with the kingdom of God and children. First point, the disciples and children. So the situation, as we read, people are bringing children to Jesus. Uh, Mark is ambiguous about who, who's bringing, and who's being brought. All we know is people and children. The presumption is that it's parents, maybe a safe assumption, but Mark leaves out the detail. The assumption is also that it's very young children, probably infants, only because at the end Jesus actually holds them, takes them in his arms. But we don't know. And the conclusion is that because Mark is being vague about the details here, it's probably because he doesn't want us to get distracted with the details because he has a different point to make here. The practice of bringing babies, infants, children to the priest, to a local rabbi, to some special spiritual person has a long history, not an uncommon thing to be taking place. And now Jesus comes through town, and so people begin to bring the young children. But the focus of the text begins with the disciples, because the disciples took action that caused Jesus to be indignant. They were, they were stopping this. It says the disciples rebuked them. Strong word, 
harsh. They were harsh with them. They, they were abrupt with them. Okay, so there was, there was nothing like, oh, folks, this really isn't a good time for Jesus. I don't, I'm not sure that he has time. He's got some other things going on. Maybe this isn't the best time. Why don't you check back with him tomorrow? It was not like that. It was more like, this is not going to happen. Not on our watch. Jesus is not going to waste his time, spend his time on laying his hands and blessing and praying for these little babies. He's got more important things to do. This is not on the agenda, so back off. Just take your baby and go. Why were the disciples so opposed to Jesus blessing these children? Again, we don't have anything explicitly in the text that is explaining to us why. You know, maybe they genuinely thought they were protecting Jesus from some insignificant task here. Maybe they thought they were protecting him, sparing him, leaving him for the more important things. The crippled, the blind, raising the dead, that sort of thing. But just praying for babies? We don't have time for that. Maybe, and very likely we have a context where these 12 disciples are still caught up in their in themselves in their own greatness they're they're obviously not getting the lessons they've been being taught these lessons about greatness and who to accept and who to welcome and they're they're simply not getting it i mean they're just violating it again and was it not just a couple of verses ago that Jesus was correcting them on this, and yet still they want to keep people out. They were challenged about how they saw themselves as too great. They were challenged about who they restricted to be included in the work that was going on here. One thing that we can know for sure, they did not view children the way Jesus did. One thing we can know for sure, whatever was going on in their hearts, whatever was the reasoning behind them rebuking these people, bringing these babies to Jesus, it was clearly they did not view those children the same way that Jesus did. They had a wrong view of those children. They also had a wrong view of themselves. They had a wrong view of the kingdom of God, in particular as it relates to children. Maybe we can relate. A famous line from a standard Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life. There is a point where George Bailey is in the thick of his troubles, distraught over his wasted life and how life didn't turn out the way he wanted it, and everything is breaking down and everything is problem, and at some point George just blurts out this and why did we have to have all these kids anyway a line that may or may not have been quoted in the boomsma household from time to time why did we have to have all these kids anyway it's not difficult for your perspective to get lost towards children about children. Society and culture always have something to say about the kids. I was pulling a couple, I got a couple paragraphs here from a book written by a man named Dick Keyes. 
The book's title is Beyond Identity, and in it he talks a little bit about parents and children. He lays out a little bit of history like this. He said the classic Victorian approach, at its extreme, has the parents, especially the father, ruling the home with an iron hand. The child is a nuisance to be made to behave like a little adult at as early an age as possible. The primary role of the parent is to maintain authority and to instill in the child the right sense of discipline and duty. He puts that under the heading of the Victorian age. Then he contrasts that with the Romantic age. The Romantic reacted to this. They begin with the assumption that the child is basically good and that the problem is the influences of adult civilization. Outside authority stifles their development and creativity, bringing inhibition, suppression, and repression. The implication is that there is no need for discipline if parents and teachers have enough love and imagination to provide freedom for the children. Now, those are the extreme characterizations, but all of us have a little of one and a little less of the other and something of this or something of that going on inside of our hearts. We, we all have been fed something from the culture about how we view children. And of course, Dick Keyes responds with a more biblical view in contrast to these things, that every child is the image and likeness of God created by God to reflect his character and have dominion over the earth. But at the same time, Every child is fallen. The child is the likeness of God, but a rebel at their own level, in futility, throwing themselves into the task of replacing their creator. So we know the doctrine of the fall tells us that every human being is born under sin and born with this corruption at work in their heart. So while we're created in the image of God, the image has been corrupted through sin and we are born into this we inherit this but this is how it plays out in our text jesus came for children he came to save them they need to get to jesus you and i need to get to jesus and so jesus comes and he's there and they're bringing the children to him precisely why he came precisely what he wanted to see happen so let's look at the second point, Jesus and children. He has a strong response to the disciples stopping these people from bringing children to Jesus. It says he was indignant. Uh, Mark is actually one of the best New Testament authors if you want to take a look at the negative emotions of Jesus. Mark highlights them more than any other author. Jesus has a range of emotions that he expressed, and with that come some names. There's some things that made him angry. This one made him angry. This, at this moment, he becomes indignant with what is going on. B.B. Warfield uh, writes a nice book, a wonderful theological book about Christ, and in it he has a chapter about the emotional life of Jesus. And he explains some of these negative emotions and how it is it's impossible for a moral being to stand in the presence of perceived wrong, indifferent or unmoved. And how the emotions of indignation and anger belong to a moral being when, the present, when in the presence of wrong. And here we see Jesus very moved by what has taken place. The issue was so wrong in a couple of directions. 
Not only were these disciples so, so blind to the realities of God's kingdom, the greatness of serving others and the openness of welcoming, welcoming even the least in society, and here, the high value of children in God's eyes and how they ought to be welcomed and how they ought to be blessed. But what really set Jesus on edge, if you will, was the fact that all their wrong perceptions led to an action, an action that was actually hindering gospel work, actually blockading, stopping, getting in the way, a real hindrance to what Christ came to do. And Jesus is there wanting the children to come to him. And the disciples step in the way and stop what's going on. This caused our Savior to be indignant. I pulled a little list of Jesus and children out of a devotional book from John Piper, A Godward Life. Uh, I love it when these scholars go to work and just start doing a little bit of, okay, let's find everything in the New Testament where Jesus and children are together and start creating a list. I'm just going to rattle off this list to you because I think it's going to have a good effect on your heart. First of all, Jesus came as a child. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. Now don't gloss over that so quickly. Well, if Jesus were to come, of course, he had to come as a baby. Well, no, not necessarily. He could have just shown up, but he didn't. He came as a baby. That was important. It was an important component of the incarnation and what he was communicating. Our text that we read this morning, Jesus took children into his arms and blessed them. In Matthew 15, Jesus healed a child of a Canaanite woman. In Matthew 17, he cast a demon out of a young boy. In Mark chapter 5, he raises a little girl from the dead. Jesus took a few loaves and fish from a little boy in order to feed a multitude. Jesus taught in our text that we must become like a child in order to enter the kingdom. At the triumphal entry, it was children who worshipped him by crying out, Hosanna. And Jesus taught in Mark chapter 9, we hit this a month ago, that receiving a child in his name is the same as receiving him. Imagine a scenario with me. Jesus comes to visit us. Okay, so Jesus shows up physically. He's here. He's, he's sitting in the pews. And he says, okay, Sovereign Grace Church of Pasadena, I'm just making the rounds. I'm visiting my churches. And I'm going to spend a week with you here. I'm just going to hang out with you all, okay? So everybody just stop your life. We're just having church for seven days, okay? We're just going to be here. We're going to be with Jesus. And no doubt, your, your mind is full of all the questions you want to ask and all the time you would love to spend with Jesus and interact with him, have him pray for you, tell him all your needs, have him heal you, have him answer your questions and, and, and be with you. So let's say he's with us for a week and we all spend a week together and we're interacting with Jesus. And we get to the end of that week and we begin to reflect and write down all the things that Jesus did. And when we write all those things down, would it surprise you if maybe about a third of the things on that list was Jesus interacting 
with your children. If we were to list it all off and all of a sudden you started to see names of, of, of the young children in the church and the, and the teenagers, would that surprise you at all? It surprise you if we were having a Sunday meeting and Jesus was with us. We'd say, where's Jesus? Only to find out he's in one of the classrooms with the children this particular meeting. Would it surprise you that how quickly and how much Jesus would know the names of all the children in the church? And what percentage of miracles and prayers and blessings would have taken place with the kids, not the adults. Both, for sure. Is there any sense in our hearts that somehow we, as the adults, take priority in the kingdom? It was not the case throughout the New Testament. It was not the case for the three and a half years of his earthly ministry. Jesus spent time with the children. He blessed them. He cared for them. He prayed for them. He healed them. And the teaching of Jesus in our text comes down, let them come. Let them come. Don't hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. And our text ends with Jesus taking them into his arms, praying over them blessing them, holding them, cherishing them. That statement that Jesus made is not trying to say that children necessarily have exclusive ownership of God's kingdom, but he's certainly saying that they have a rightful share in it. Charles Hodge wrote this, he tells us of such is the kingdom of heaven as though heaven was in great measure composed of the souls of redeemed infants. Lots of children in heaven. In fact, I believe there's a good, sound, biblical case to be made for the idea, the concept, that if babies die, that there is special sovereign grace for them and that they are with the Lord. John MacArthur wrote a book about this safe in the arms of God, lays out a biblical case for this concept. I find it compelling and convincing. And the verse that we read together today is a big part of that. It's how Jesus viewed children. We have the disciples and children. We have Jesus and children. Let's close with talking about the kingdom of God and children. Truly, Jesus says, okay, there it is, key word. Truly, verily, amen. When Jesus starts the sentence with amen, it's time to take note. This is a special saying that should be memorized, not forgotten. This is important. Now, everything that Jesus said is important. Every word in the Bible is important, but not every word is important in the same way. And so when Jesus says, truly, 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 I'm saying to you, take note. Now you're getting an important principle, concept 
truism of the kingdom. These are the highlights. Put this in bold and underline it. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. The kingdom of God is, on the one hand, something given to us. It is a gift. You cannot earn it. But on the other hand, we see at the same time there is a way of receiving it. There is a, there, there is a posture of entering into the kingdom. And, and Jesus is saying, this is the posture. There's something about a child that informs all of us this is the posture that is required, that depicts, that shows entrance into his kingdom. It is not work to talk about your baby's innocence, humility, modesty, or cuteness and think that must be what Jesus is talking about. We have to be like that baby to enter in. But knowing something about babies and knowing something about God's grace, I think we can piece together what is Jesus after here? Babies bring nothing to offer, and yet they expect everything from you. They are both absolutely dependent and absolutely expectant as a parent if you're a parent you know something of the joy the extreme joy that your children bring to your heart but you also know this these little babies do not come out of the womb and enter in your lives with any thought about your happiness They do not lie in their crib at 2 in the morning and say, well, I'm kind of hungry, but I know mom's a little tired. I think I'll just wait till 7 or 8 before I let out a little peep to let her know it's time for breakfast. Not at all. The expectation is full and complete. You will provide everything that I need when I need it. However I need it, whatever it is I need. The assumption is you are my provision. And if I'm hungry, you will feed me. If I need changing, you will change me. And if I don't want you to change me, I'll let you know I don't want you to change me, even if I need you to change me. These babies come into our lives. They are... I say we know the joy that we get from them, but my point is they are not coming able to contribute anything to the household. They come with nothing but need. They are entirely dependent upon you as parents to serve them, to be on call 24-7. I believe is what Jesus is after. How do you enter God's kingdom? With nothing to contribute 
ourselves. We see this over and over throughout the scriptures. If you think you're coming to God with your talents, your skills, your great personality, and thinking, Lord, I know I need your help, but I got a few things I'd like to put into the kitty as well. Trying to smuggle in anything like that of your own righteousness. Jesus is saying, it just, it only proves you're not in a posture to enter the kingdom. They only come in one way, with nothing in our hand to bring, nothing of our own to contribute. It is all of God's grace. And with that comes this full expectation. If I'm going to live at all, if I'm going to survive at all, it will all have to come from above. It will all have to come of God's grace in order to make me a son or a daughter. In that sense, babies display and remind us of the only way we can come to God. We enter God's kingdom like babies enter into families. Empty hands, nothing to offer, no real contribution, fully expectant, nothing but need, only receiving. Paul would write often, building on this concept, making the point that Entering in the kingdom happens in such a way that completely eliminates any sense of boasting. He says over and over again, you've got, you've got nothing to boast about. If you're in Christ, it's not your own doing. You have nothing to brag about. It is all of grace. Boasting is permanently eliminated from our hearts, but as well, gratitude is forever established in our hearts. This is life inside Christ's kingdom. I have some application for you this morning. I have some recommendations for us as a church. I say recommendations not rules. Please don't take recommendations and turn them into rules. These are not meant to be rules. These are meant to be recommendations of applying and putting into practice this principle, what Jesus is talking about here. And, and don't forget that what is happening in this text is Jesus is making disciples. He is training the soon-to-be leaders of the church. Okay, so this is not first and foremost a parenting seminar by Jesus with the disciples. This is first and foremost about the church, how the church should look, feel, view, act, treat children. It's good for parents it is not restricted to parents. This is Jesus teaching the leaders of the church how the church should function as it relates to children. So when I'm talking about children, I want you to know if you don't have children, you're not excluded. 
We're all in this together. Something happens in the church, in the body of Christ, in a local church. And friends, we have, we have such, such a great, marvelous opportunity for us as a congregation to have such a profound effect on the children in this congregation. Okay, some application. Friends, members, Christians, invest in the children in our local church. We are in a season where we are a relatively small church. And you who are parents, you realize Nobody has a large peer group in this church. Whatever age your child is, you're, you're lucky if there's another one or two, maybe three, in that peer group category for your children. Now, that may change. It's been different in the past. It'll probably be different in the future. But as it stands right now, uh, nobody in the room has a very large peer group. So what are we going to do about that? A relatively small church. We don't have church budget to go hiring uh, youth pastor, full-time youth pastors, full-time children's ministry pastors. It's us working together to build this community. Now, what that means is sometimes it's not uncommon in some of the teenagers, some of the children experience some loneliness. That is true, that is sad, that is difficult. But my point is this. If we get this as a church, as a congregation, we can have a significant, profound effect on the lives of the children of this church. So here's my recommendation. Take an interest in the children in this church learn their names learn their names and make it a point of greeting them by name when you see them on sunday morning or at any other gathering how easy would it be for us to walk past the children greet the parents greet the adults greet the person that's sort of on our peer level how would it be different if we learn the names of each other's children and made it a point to take an interest in their lives, what would it mean if we got to know them well enough to be able to pray specifically for them? And in that, could I encourage you to watch specifically for the children of single parents? These are the households with particular need where the church should and has opportunity to shine even more. Do you know who they are? Are there ways you could take an interest in those children? And again, we're starting very simple. Could you know their name? Could you say hello to them on a Sunday morning? Maybe there's an activity going on in your life that you could include them in. 
Maybe there's other ways. Again, these are recommendations, not rules. But think through. If to such is the kingdom of heaven, what should this local church look like with the children in this local church? Secondly, prayerfully consider serving in children's ministry. Grace Kids is happening every time we gather. It is our greatest evangelistic outreach program we do as a church, bringing the gospel to our children week after week. I listen to a lot of people's testimony about how God met them and how God saved them. It is not uncommon to hear a story about a child who came to know Christ, saving faith, because of a children's ministry teacher that was willing to take an interest in them, pray for them, ask them questions, learn who they are, discern what's going on in their hearts, and lead them to the Lord. <laughs> oh, bringing people to Jesus, bringing children to Jesus. What a testimony would it be if at Sovereign Grace Church Pasadena you had to be put on a waiting list to serve in children's ministry? I think that would be fun. I think that would be an expression of God's grace. I think it would be sweet if we had to come to you and say, you know what, you've been serving in children's ministry for two years and I'm afraid we're going to have to let you go for a season and make room for somebody else. I've got five people that want your slot. So take a break. You can go be on the worship team or be a greeter or something like that. We've got to make room. We've got too many people that are too hungry to make an investment in these young lives. I think that would be a fun testimony of the grace of God in this church. I think that would say something I think that would reflect God's grace in a unique way. Parents, if you're a parent, grow in your parenting. Read good books about parenting. Parenting, while it is very natural, does not come naturally. Parenting, good Gospel-centered parenting is one of the most unnatural functions that I've come across in my life. We have much to learn. I called Jesenia this week. I said, would you go down in the basement and go through the whole old bookstore inventory and pull out every book on parenting you can find? So she comes up with a box full of books. They're sitting on the table in the lobby. So as you leave, grab a parenting book. You have been entrusted with children to raise them in the Lord. It would make perfectly good sense to once every year, every two years, to read a good parenting book so that you can grow in your parenting skills. Your investment in those children's lives are significant. You can make a powerful impact. You will, for good or bad. Let's make it for good. If you're a parent and you have children in children's ministry, you could, this is a recommendation, not a rule, 
You could ask the children's ministry worker when you pick up your children, how did my kids do today? Anything we could be working on? Anything you need me to follow up on, talk to them about? Could you give me one idea on how my child could be a better student in your classroom? We got a whole list of things we're working on at home. I just wonder what's going on when they're with a group of other kids in the classroom. Maybe at least once a month, that'd be a great question for you as a parent to ask the children's ministry worker. We have a philosophy of children's ministry, which is to assist and help the parents in raising their children. That is supplemental. Why not draw from that resource and say, hey, how can you help me? Let me know how my child does when I'm not around and they're around some of their peers. That I would like to know. Because I'd love to be praying for my children about that, talking to them about that, working with them about that. Okay, have the worship team come on up. Okay, that's my list of recommendations. You could add to that list. There's many more things that we could be doing, but I would say this most important application of all in this whole message would be that for you, for me, for every person in this room to never forget that each one of us is a child in God's eyes. Here's the real sort of punch of the message. Jesus talking about children. You can't enter the kingdom unless you're like a child. Here is the reality. If you're in Christ, you are a child of God. And yes, while we're in Christ, we do mature, we grow. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the sanctifying work. We're maturing into, into something more and more glorious, more and more like Christ. We grow up to be men and women filled with faith and courage and confidence in the Lord. Nevertheless, for all of us, we will never cease to be children of God. We will never cease to be the younger brother, younger sister of our elder brother Jesus who went before us and saved us. That status will never change. So in reality, we're all children in God's eyes. Keep that in mind the next time you meet one of the children in the church. Let's stand together and we'll close with a song. Father, I know that you are building for yourself a testimony in this congregation and you've spoken through your word on one particular area of life, how we as a congregation relate, view, and treat children. And we want to surrender ourselves, Lord, to your word and to the work of your spirit so that that testimony for your glory would grow in this congregation. May the children in this congregation grow up reflecting and loving their local church 
as they come into adulthood that their story and their testimony would be my, the people in my church cared so much about me from the young to the old they they knew my name they talked to me they they knew what was going on in my life and while I may or may not have had a lot of peers in my local church I certainly had a family that loved me and cared for me and took an interest in me Lord we pray that into the future we'd be hearing testimonies like that and when we do we'll know we got what you were saying in Mark chapter 10 to us. Be glorified. Use us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.